0: If you've got a Bible in front of you, you a Pew Bible there or your own Bible, please turn with me to Ezra chapter 4. Ezra chapter (coughs) 4. So, in general, and certainly, I suppose, compared with the, the current situation. Um, the late 1990s and the early 2000s, that was, that was a time of great economic prosperity throughout um, much of the Western world, wasn't it? In these years, many individuals, some companies, even some countries, I suppose, they experienced times of, of rapid financial growth. And boom years, there was a lot of affluence it really was a rosy economic picture, wasn't it, around the, 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 the turn of the century. And so, given the subsequent financial crash, many people have asked whether during these boom years, were there any signs of the troubles that were to come? Were there any indicators that these, that these times of financial uh, growth were there any indicators that things were going to go wrong and um, that there was trouble on the economic horizon and a whole host of um, ideas are out there a whole host of suggestions about uh, the signs we should have seen um, people say that there was uh, a, a, a crash in the asian economy around 1997 and that that should have alerted uh, the, the markets throughout the world, also the, the burst in the dot-com bubble in 2000-2001, that uh, amongst others, these have been suggested as signs that trouble was on the economic horizon. Trouble was on the horizon. And really, that's where we're at tonight with Ezra. Because you see, up until this point, everything's been great, hasn't it? It's been a kind of rosy picture. Um, Remember where we left it last week at the end of uh, chapter 3? There was emotion and there was euphoria in worship, wasn't there? And really up to now, in in the first three chapters, the people of God, they've been an example to us, an example to follow. They've prioritized God. They've prioritized worship. They've prioritized the altar. But now, chapter 4, here's where the trouble begins. Here's where the warning signs start to show for the people of God. But before we get into the details of chapter 4. Before we look at this theme tonight. Now the theme tonight is opposition. Christian opposition. But before we get to that. Let's think of one preliminary point. One preliminary point. <clears throat> because. Look at the, the opening of chapter 4 here. Why? Did the people of God refuse the help of their enemies? That seems like a really strange thing to do, doesn't it? It seems foolish. It seems rude. It seems abrasive. You know, the enemies, they come to Zerubbabel, they come to the, the, (coughs) the heads of the families, and they ask the people, can we assist can we help you as you try to rebuild this temple? So why is it that the people of God turned that down flat? Well, they did that because of who these enemies were. You see, because Second Kings chapter 17 tells us that after the people of God had been taken away into exile, that uh, the Syrian the Syrian Assyrian king, he sent his people into Judah to repopulate it. And that's what they did. These descendants of the Assyrians, the the, the Samaritans, they went into the land that had been vacated, they intermarried, they intermarried with the, the people of Israel that remained, and they developed this weird hodgepodge of religious practice and belief, a real fusion of strange stuff, some of it based on the worship Yahweh, but most of it not. And so the people, they refuse the help that's offered because these Samaritans would have led the people of God into false belief, false practice, and false worship. And so, folks, even there, in this preliminary point, surely we see an application for ourselves and our lives. Because sometimes the enemies of Jesus Christ, they come to us wearing cloaks of intimacy and friendship, don't they? the enemies of Jesus Christ come to us wearing cloaks of intimacy and friendship. They come as our friends. They come suggesting things that seem innocent, things that seem harmless. But as believers, friends, we have to be really discerning and prayerful. We mustn't conform in any way. We mustn't compromise our witness to Jesus Christ. So let's get to this theme, okay? Let's look at opposition, Uh, opposition to the people of God. What was it like? Was it successful? And how can this be uh, applied uh, to ourselves today? Well, let's uh, consider three points uh, this evening. Three points about the opposition that the people of God faced. Let's look at point one. Let's note that this was considerable opposition. You got that? This was considerable opposition. And we'll see here three very short sub-points about this. Considerable opposition first sub-point, it was growing opposition, okay? It's growing opposition, because we see the real face of the enemies of the people in verse 4 and 5, don't we? You know, these, these shallow offers of help that we've read, they soon change, and it soon becomes uh, intimidation, significant intimidation. And originally. In the opening of the chapter, it was the Assyrians who offered help. The Assyrians. But look, look at verse 4. We see that that soon multiplies, doesn't it? It grows. And then look who the people of God are persecuted by in verse 4. It's the peoples around them. It's not, it's not just the Assyrians. It's not just the, the Samaritans. It's now others. It's now other people groups too. It's the Idumeans and the other non-Jews. They're all involved in this opposition. So it's growing opposition. That's the first sub-point. Second sub-point about this uh, considerable opposition is that it's full-time. It's full-time. Because just look at how serious these people were in how they opposed God you know this wasn't half-hearted they were into it in a big way they were earnest in opposing the people of God because verse five what does it say verse five they hired counselors to work against the people they hired counselors to frustrate their plans. And, and for councillors, think about um, activists. That's the sort of thing we're talking about here. It's campaigners. It is lobbyists that were hired to frustrate uh, the, the people of God. These are men that are employed with one purpose, and that purpose is to frustrate the people of God. So full-time opposition. So it's considerable opposition, it's growing opposition, it's full-time opposition. And then the third sub-point is that it's persistent. It is persistent. Because verse 5 also tells us that this uh, hatred towards the people, this hostility, it lasts during the entire reign of Cyrus. And it lasts down to the reign of Darius too. And then if we take into account this next section from verse 6, we see that it's still going in the reign of Xerxes and Artaxerxes. So, so get this, if you're reading your Bible, right? If you're reading your Bible here, the opposition begins in Ezra chapter 4. And it's still going at the end of Ezra chapter 4. And then into Ezra chapter 5, is there the opposition? Yes, there is. You get to the very end of the book of Ezra. These poor people, they're still being opposed. Then where do you go? You go into Nehemiah. Guess what? The people are still being opposed. There's still persecution. You get to the end of Nehemiah before this sort of opposition finishes and ends. You see, this isn't a few insults at these people. This is significant. It's horrible, it is severe opposition. It is persistent hostility to the people of God. It's point one: considerable opposition. But why should we care about that? Why should we care that these people were persecuted? and faced suffering and were opposed. Because this is, what, 2,500 years ago or something? This is a land a long way from here. Why should you care that these people were persecuted? Well, I'll read one verse. You don't have to look it up, but it's in Second Timothy. It's 2 Timothy 3.12. It says this. Everyone who wants to lead... A godly life will be persecuted. Everyone who wants to lead a godly life will be persecuted. Paul's saying that all of us, all of us should expect persecution, suffering and opposition. That friends, it will be happen to you that's why we should care that's why this matters now i don't know if you've been following the news in the last few days or not i don't know if you've been on the bbc website Um, well i was and they had a very interesting story about sandy island i don't know if anyone saw that it was a bizarre bizarre story Um, sandy island is an island in the south pacific except that it's not it's been appearing on google maps it's been uh, appearing on maps that have been printed for for years but scientists went out recently to explore it and it wasn't there it doesn't actually exist at all and is that like our attitude to opposition. You know, we, we perhaps think, we, we know that the Bible tells us that we might experience persecution, suffering and opposition, but really, we don't really think that it'll happen to us. Or when it comes, it very, very often takes us by surprise. Friends, we have an insufficient Theology of suffering and opposition. It will happen to us. If we are trying to lead godly lives, we will be opposed. And that opposition is so varied, isn't it? It comes in all shapes and sizes. Now, we've read in those verses there that these people in Ezra are targeted by lobbyists. You're targeted by lobbyists. Now, surely that doesn't sound too remote a possibility for Christians in the 21st century, does it? Or Christians in Britain. Let's be frank about this. that There are groups and there are powerful lobbies that seek today, are very active today, in opposing God's work and his word. They seek lobby groups to oppose the cause of Jesus Christ. Ezra 4 is bang up to date. It is incredibly relevant to where we are today. But does that mean we should panic about this? What do you think? Should we fear? Should we worry about this? Well, Hebrews 13.5 says this. Take courage and encouragement from this. God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? What can man do to me? So we face considerable opposition. We will face considerable opposition but that is nothing compares with the protective arm of the lord so point two is this point two is that we see here deceitful opposition we've noted that it was considerable now let's see that it was deceitful deceitful opposition and we come to this interesting section here from verse 6. So if your Bibles are open, just have a, a wee eye on this. Because we've got here a parenthesis. A parenthesis. Because from verse 6 to verse 23, do you see it? That, that, that section that's, that the NIV calls later opposition under Xerxes and Artaxerxes. That doesn't happen at the same time as the rest of the events here that section from 6 to 23 that happens much much later on so why has the author put that in why has Ezra decided to cut and paste that from later and put it in there well he's done that to show us the the severity yeah of the opposition he 's done it to show us the, the length of the opposition, but he 's done it to show us the type of opposition that these people faced okay the the kind of opposition yeah, the people of God were ex- exposed to because this parenthesis from six to twenty three it deals with yeah a a, a written Accusation about the people of Israel to Xerxes in verse 6. And then it deals with a letter to Artaxerxes about the people of God. And this contained something important. This letter to Artaxerxes, it contained three obvious lies about the people. It contained three obvious lies. What were they? I'll rattle through them. The first one's in verse 12. It says, in this letter, it says that Jerusalem was a place of rebellion. That it was going to be a place of rebellion. Now, that's nonsensical, okay? That doesn't make any sense at all, because these people are not long back from exile. They were weak. You know, there's just a few of them. There was no chance that they were going to rebel. Second lie is in verse 13. Verse 13. And there, Artaxerxes has warned that the people of God are not going to pay back. They're not going to give any money, any taxes, any duties to Artaxerxes. Again, foundationless is nonsensical. And then the third lie, verse 16. If the king doesn't act, the people of God are going to seek to expand their territory to be the Euphrates. And that, out of all of them, is the most ridiculous lie of them all. It's ludicrous. Because again, just said, these are a small group of people. There is no way they could expand their territory that far. They are facing deceitful opposition. And friends, if we take anything away from tonight, we need to see who is behind this opposition we need to see who is behind the opposition in Ezra and who's behind the opposition that you face and you will face in your life as Christians because in John chapter eight, Jesus describes Satan he describes the devil and he calls him the father. Of lies. He calls him the father of lies. You see friends. Our greatest enemy. Our most powerful adversary. He seeks at all times to oppose us. And he is a master of deceit. He is a master of cunning. Deception. And dishonesty. He is the father of lies. So tonight, you might be facing opposition in your life. Or as we go forward as a church here, we are going to face opposition. And we have to be aware of where that comes from and what form it will take. The devil will be behind it. And it may well be deceitful opposition. Now, You might be facing opposition just now and the devil might be lying to you in your life just now. He might be telling you that you're not good enough, that you're not spiritual enough to be reaching out with the gospel. You might not be spiritual enough or good enough to be involved in the work of the congregation. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. We must be conscious that we will face opposition and that it may well be steeped in lies. Now, I don't know if, if, if you're a couch potato, um, I don't know if you're a TV addict, but uh, if you are, you may well be familiar with Grand Designs. I think it's a, a fantastic television program, Grand, Grand Designs. It's fascinating. It's fascinating to see all the ideas that that people come up with and the sheer uh, dedication that these people have to to the projects that they involve themselves in. But it's also fascinating, isn't it, to see the opposition that they sometimes face. Because time and again when you're watching Grand Designs, the baddies will appear. You know, there'll be a a, a Land Rover appears uh, out of nowhere and a man will get out with a high-vis jacket and a hard hat and a clipboard. And you know that the planning official is here. And I've seen a couple of episodes recently where he appears and he stops the work. He stops it right there. He halts it instantly. And these builders and designers and architects, they literally have to go back to the, to the drawing board, the work Stops. It stops. And that's our last point tonight. Our third point. This was effective opposition, wasn't it? It was effective opposition. Because we've seen this parenthesis from verse 6 to verse 23, but then look at verse 24. Is the most important verse here, surely, in this context. Because chronologically, verse 24 comes after verse 5. And what do we learn in verse 24? It says, thus, the work on the house of God came to a standstill. The work stopped. It stopped for about 16 years. This opposition was completely effective. Now, you see, the problem with that is that the people of God gave in, didn't they? They absolutely capitulated here. Now, on grand designs, if one of these planners comes in and says, no, you don't go any further, then what happens? The, the, the people, the, the builders, the architects, the planners, they, they fight their corner, don't they? They oppose the judgment. They complain and they complain. But look at verse 4. Look at it. Where is the response of the people of God? See, what do you think is missing? What is missing in chapter 4? Where's prayer the people of god they don't complain they don't fight their corner and worst of all they don't commit this situation to god in prayer they're opposed but they don't pray Now, friends regardless of where you're at tonight you know opposition comes in all shapes and sizes Now you might be facing opposition from friends and family who are antagonistic to Christianity. Whether it's opposition again that our church will face in the coming weeks or months. One thing is for sure that we mustn't stop working. We mustn't stop and we must commit that opposition to God in prayer. Now, We'll end with this, okay? This is the last thing, the very last thing. There are here the most striking similarities and the most striking parallels with later opposition. With opposition that would happen later. Many years later, opposition that also took place In Jerusalem. Because in the life and in the trial and in the death of Jesus Christ, we see the most incredible degree of opposition. You see, his life, his whole life was characterized by considerable opposition his trial. His trial was all about deceitful opposition. You see, the people lied to have him arrested. And then in his death, this death on the cross, we have what surely looks like effective opposition, don't we? He was tortured. He was beaten. He was executed. Surely that is effective opposition. But no. What looked like a victory of Satan. What looks like a victory of the devil. Was quite firmly in the hand of the Lord God Almighty. So friends. When. Not if. When we face opposition when you face opposition you must look to Jesus Christ because he overcame, he overcame persecution, he overcame suffering, he overcame opposition, he rose from the dead and through him we have the power to resist the devil through him we have the power to resist all forms of sinful opposition. So the work of rebuilding the temple, it ceased. Let us not cease in the worship and in the service of our God. Let's pray.